Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. morning, New Life Baptist Church. Uh, let me be the first to say to you today that it is a beautiful day outside. Uh, I know that I am absolutely alone in saying this and thinking this, but I am thoroughly enjoying this weather. I love the cold. Don't get me wrong, it is bitter cold, but I love it. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So while you're looking outside or you walk to your car or wherever, and you think to yourself, it's so cold, who could possibly enjoy this? Think of me, because I am enjoying it thoroughly, and I am enjoying it for the both of us. Now, the one thing that I do lament is that because of the weather, we're not able to gather together this morning. That's why we're doing this live stream. We, as we've been learning in the, our Sunday School series, The Church According to Scripture, gathering together as one body is an essential element of being a Christian. It's an essential element of being a part of a church, is that we have to gather together. You're familiar with the passage from Hebrews that tells us not to um, neglect the gathering together, uh, the assembling together of ourselves as some are accustomed to doing. So it is unfortunate that we can't be here singing together, learning together, praying together, but we are thankful that the Lord has provided a way for us to still get the Word of God this morning, to dive into um, our Scripture this morning and study it and learn. I want to encourage you. Uh, I know that you're there at home. Uh, I want to encourage you to get your Bible, to put your distractions aside, to have your Bible out, and to be engaged this morning as though you're actually here, um, and take notes, follow along, etc., etc., Okay, without further ado, let's get our Bibles out. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. We are, as I said last week, we are coming in for a landing in our time in 1 John. This morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5 verses 13 through 15. And in this section of scripture, we're going to see the, the title verse, if you will, for our, uh, the name of the series, uh, Tested Assurance. We titled this series Tested Assurance, and the idea is that we want to have blessed assurance, assurance of salvation, but in order to do so, we must have our assurance tested. Therefore, this series is Tested Assurance. All throughout First John, we've just been looking at test after test after test, and no doubt uh, today we're going to start seeing some of the results of that test. So I hope you're there. First John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. This is the word of the living God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have Toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day of life. We thank you for waking us today. We thank you for providing means for us to still study your word today and to proclaim the truths of your scriptures. And Lord, I pray that although we are doing this all online, I pray that somehow, some way, through the Spirit, you would unite us this morning, that you would help us to uh, feel your presence, your nearness, Lord. I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to see the truth in your scripture. I pray that you would help us to put our distractions aside and to focus on you, Lord. For you are absolutely worthy, and we want to learn, and we want to know how we can better serve you and better glorify you in our life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Herein we're finding the central theme of this letter, of this First John's letter, or the first letter of John. And consequently, as I said earlier, this was the theme of our series, Tested Assurance. We began this series five months ago. And what we talked about in that initial overview, and we've uh, talked about several times since, is that John is writing to, if one of the reasons John is writing is to combat false teaching. There were many heresies going on, uh, circulating throughout the churches during that time. And they were drawing Christians away, and they were dividing the church. What you were seeing is, is people fleeing from the church, a mass exodus of people following after false teaching. And so John is writing to the people who were left behind who did not follow after the false teachers. Why is he doing this? To refute what they've been saying and give them assurance that they have salvation. See, they've been teaching and preaching about this hidden knowledge of God that they have access to and that they are trying to sell to this early church that they could have access to. And what John is saying is, I want you to know that you already have what they're trying to sell. More than that, they don't even have what they're trying to sell. They have no way to fulfill their empty promises. I want you to know that you have eternal life. John has provided essentially three different categories of tests. That's why, again, why we called it tested assurance. There's tested assurance. There's three main categories of tests that all you could kind of um, categorize all of these tests under. Doctrinal, moral, and social. Or doctrinal and obedience and love. The essence of these tests could be summed up by saying that when we believe the truth about Christ, we live lives of obedience to Christ while showing the love of Christ to Christ's people. That's essentially what John is doing here, showing us, is that when we believe the truth about Christ, we live lives of obedience to Christ. In other words, it transforms us to live lives of obedience unto our new King, Savior, and Lord. And because of that obedience, from that place of obedience, it, it, it leads to us living lives of love, loving people, especially other Christians, sacrificially. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, John told us that he was writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's interesting to note back in John's gospel, the gospel according to John, that he writes something similar to the ending here. It's John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wrote the gospel to lead unbelievers to saving faith in Christ. And he wrote 1 John to show believers that they can know that they have savingly believed. There is nothing greater to know that you've uh, than, than to know that you've led someone to savingly believe in Christ, except for leading a person to know that they have savingly believed in Christ. In other words, it's a wonderful thing to lead someone to salvation, and it's an equally wonderful thing to give people assurance of salvation. See, Christianity is the only religion where we can know that we have eternal life, and it's not prideful. 
It's actually just having faith. It's actually just believing what God said. He wants us to be assured of our salvation. The Lord does not want you to be guessing about whether or not you're in the family of God. He wants you to know. He wants you to rest assured that you are His, so much so that He spilled His own blood to do so. The word know appears seven times throughout these final seven verses. So allow me to say, verses 13 through the ending here, verse 21, it's all one, uh, it's all a thought leading to a thought to a thought. So they're all interconnected in some way, shape, form, or fashion. So you're going to need to kind of uh, remember some of what we talk about today, next week, because we're going to tie them all together. We're only going to deal with three times that he uses this word no today, and that's why we're focusing on verses 13 through 15. But there are three things that you can know in the Christian life from these three verses. And again, there will be seven by the time we've made it to the end of this book. But three of them that we're going to cover today. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the first thing that we can know. If you have passed the tests throughout 1 John, if you have passed the doctrinal test, if you have passed the moral test, if you have passed the social test, then there are three assurances here that you can walk away with. Number one is that we can know we have eternal life. We've seen that that's one of the main reasons John wrote this letter was to give assurance of salvation as he refutes the false teaching. And he was doing that by holding up this series of tests by which the readers could examine the lives of the false teachers and also their own lives. So throughout this letter, he's been giving us the series of tests by which the readers would look at the false teachers and compare them against this series of qualifications, if you will, and see, okay, these guys actually are false teachers. They're not passing any of these tests. These guys do not deserve our attention. We don't need to listen to them. We need to let them go. But also, they would be able to look at their own life, testing themselves, and see, okay, I know that they really confused me there for a time, and they really shook our faith, and they caused division in the body here. But now, thanks to the Apostle John's testing of us, we can know that we are on the right track. We can know that we do have eternal life. We can know that we have what the false teachers are trying to sell. We already have it. This would fill the church's hearts with confidence and assurance, knowing that they did the right thing in not following after the false teachers, but instead holding on for dear life to faith. He went on to demonstrate that you can know that you are truly believing in Christ for salvation if you now have a new set of desires. These desires are not for your old sinful ways any longer, but they are now to please your King, your Savior. That you don't live for you anymore. You live for King Jesus. Why? Because He has saved you. Why do we get up early and get in the Word and pray? Because He has saved us. Because He laid down His life for us. This is why. You once were in rebellion against the Lord, running as fast as you could from Him. But now you are joyfully subservient to Him, running as fast as you can 
to him. This new desire to live a life of obedience is what the Spirit has led you into. He has given you new desires for righteousness, new desires to obey. It is the Spirit at work in you, convincing you of the truth of the gospel that is also working in you the transformative power of the gospel. This obedience, this dramatic and drastic transformation forges within you a sacrificial love for other believers. This is what we've been learning in our time together in 1 John. Now you're not looking for what you can get out of people, but what you can pour into other people. You're not looking to make people serve your best interest, but you are serving their best interest with the grace that you have been shown by God through Christ, you are now showing that grace to others. Do you do any of these things perfectly? Absolutely not. Of course you do not. But the beginning and the continuance of the work is what gives us assurance. In other words, that something started and it's still going today. That is what gives us assurance. If I plant an apple tree in my front yard, how can I know that I planted an apple tree in my front yard? Well, number one, I would remember that I did it. But also, at any time, I could open up the window or go out into the front yard and see there is a tree growing. Is it going to grow to be this big, beautiful tree overnight? Certainly not. It's going to start off looking really pathetic, isn't it? That's an apple tree? That little thing? I don't think so. And sometimes this is how it feels in the Christian life. Is that our growth and our progress is so slow. But I want you to know today that if there is progress being made that started with you repenting and believing in Christ, That's assurance of salvation. That a work started and a work continues. This is what fills our hearts with assurance. The way that this sentence is structured in the original language, it would more literally read, I write these things that you may know you have eternal life. All of you who believe in the name of the Son of God. The emphasis is heavy on the, inch, the assurance aspect of the writing. And specifically, he is writing to people who believe. You see, we don't want to give people who don't believe in God a false assurance. We don't want to tell everybody who comes to church on Sunday or Wednesday, praise God, you're saved and you're going to be in heaven with all of us. No, we want to give assurance to the people who believe in the name of the Son of God. What is that name? It's Jesus Christ. If you have believed upon His name, you can have assurance this morning. If you have not believed upon His name, you can have assurance that you do not have eternal life. That will be evidenced to you by the fact that You will not pass the doctrinal test. You will not know how to, you will not comprehend the truth of the gospel. You will not know who Jesus is. You will not pass the moral test. In other words, you're not living a life of obedience to God. There are multiple areas in your life where we could look at and say you're just rampant disobedience. You're living in unrepentant sin. And lastly, Your love, the love that you show for other people, is selfish. It comes from a place of self-serving. You might care for other people and you might do things for other people, but ultimately, you do it for yourself. If that's you this morning, the assurance that you can have is that you do not know God. That you have not believed in the name of the Son of God, but you can also further know 
that if you would believe in the name of the Son of God and repent of your sins, that even now, right where you're at, you will be saved. That's what, how it happened for all of us, isn't it? We were living lives of rampant sinfulness until the day where we repented and believed. And the Lord drew us to himself. He writes here that you may know you have eternal life. And I know that this is such a common phrase, eternal life. We hear this so often that it just seems to not really carry the punch or the depth of, of richness that it really is written with. But, so let's not overlook what he's saying here. To know that you have eternal life is a beautiful thing. There's at least a twofold meaning here. First is the obvious meaning. It's to have life eternal. Life that does not end. Life that does not have an ending date. Life that doesn't end when you hit the grave. It is to have life eternal. You remember John 3.16, don't you? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That you would not perish, but have eternal life. So eternal life is the opposite of perishing. Having eternal life is the opposite of perishing. God gave His Son so that those who would believe in Him would not die, but would live forever. This isn't in a physical sense, obviously, because we all will die. We all have an expiration date of our time in this body. One of the greatest causes of fear and panic over COVID-19 has been what? Has been death. It's been the fear of dying. But listen to me, Christian. If you have believed in the name of the Son of God, you have no reason to fear death. None whatsoever. Because you will not perish. Your body will die, sure. You will leave this earth, sure. But if you have believed in the name of the Son of God, the moment that you leave this body, you are present with the Lord. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Philippians 1.21 To live is Christ and to die is gain. How could we possibly say that? Is because Paul knew he had eternal life. This doesn't mean we live with reckless abandon. Of course not. But it does mean that we abandon the recklessness of fear. And we don't live lives of absolute paralyzing fear. I don't want to get sick. I don't want this to happen. I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen. The reason why we do that is because we're putting all of our stock in this life. Forgetting entirely that there's a whole other world, a whole other life that is awaiting us. It's eternal life. We mourn when we lose a loved one. Absolutely, we do. We do. It hurts. It's heart-wrenching. Jesus himself shed tears outside of the grave of, of Lazarus. And he knew that he was going to resurrect him. How much more do we shed tears outside of the grave of a loved one knowing that we will not resurrect that person? It is painful. But at the very same time, we do not live in fear. We can't be afraid. No, I want you to know that you have eternal life. Suffering will come. Listen to me. You might get cancer. You might get COVID, and it takes your life. You saw what happened in Fort Worth the other day. That might be you one day. Who knows? Maybe you live to be 150 years old, and you die peacefully in your sleep. We don't know. But what I do want you to know is that when you are on that dying bed, that you can know, I'm not afraid right now because I'm soon to be with my Savior. 
I am soon to be home with the Lord. He's taking me from this body of death and decay that's riddled with sin. And He's bringing me home where I will be with Him forever. I want you to know that you have eternal life. But it's even further than that, isn't it? See, John 17.3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What does John want his readers to know? He wants us to know that we know God. Not just that we'll live forever, but that we know God. That you may know you have eternal life. This is a verb in the active present tense. What does that mean? That means right now, today, this moment, right where you are. Not someday, not eventually, you'll have eternal life. If you have eternal life, you have eternal life right now. Now, where you are, how can this be? Because you can experience the presence of God now. You can experience intimacy with God now. And give your worship to God now in this lifetime. You can be filled with joy in this lifetime. You can know His love in this lifetime It's because of this close, intimate knowledge of the Lord that you can know the next piece of vital information. Look at verse 14 with me. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. What an amazing thing that is. He hears us. This is the fourth time that John is using this word in this short letter, this word confidence. It's only translated this way ten times in the New Testament. And John owns four of those appearances here in this short letter alone. The general sense we get from what John is saying by how he uses this word throughout this letter, is a lack of certainty, or I'm sorry, having certainty and a lack of fear. We need not fear God's judgment as his children when we approach him. You can look at, uh, write this down, chapter 2, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 21. That's where we find it, but we also find it here in chapter 4, Verses 17 and 18, turn there with me. It should be the next page behind you. Chapter 4, 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Do you see that? Whenever John's talking about this confidence, it's a lack of fear of judgment. That I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to fall under eternal condemnation if I am a child of God. I can approach Him confidently. See, The opposite of this is much like when Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord in chapter 6 of his book. He says, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up. And what does he do? He says, woe is me. He pronounces the prophet's curse upon himself. Condemnation. Why? He said, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. What is he doing? Is he's confessing his utter sinfulness. And because of his utter sinfulness, he stands condemned because he has seen the Lord. But as a child of God covered 
in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. When we see the Lord, we need not fear. We will have confidence before him because we will be like him and we will see him as he is. This confidence we have is everything. Hebrews 3.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know what he's saying there? Go to God. Go to Him. Why are you running from Him? How often do we, instead of going to God in prayer, we try to handle all of life's cares and worries and concerns and our sin all on our own? No, let us draw near to the throne of grace confidently because we can draw near this throne of grace with confidence. We have an audience with the King. Listen, when you're in the presence of the King, do you make demands of the King? Do you tell Him what He's going to do? Do you, do, do you write decrees for the land in the name of the King just because you have an audience with the King? No, you don't. You ask. Look at that word that John uses here. Verse 14 again. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Let me take a moment to talk about prayer. You see, we hear so many unbiblical prayers in our time. You hear so-called prophets making decrees in their prayer. Do you know what a decree is? It is a legally binding, authoritative command. Listen to me. We do not have that kind of authority. We cannot speak that way with legal authority, legally binding spiritual authority. We, we can't do that. We do not make decrees. We don't do that. If you hear a so-called prophet or a person saying, I decree and I declare, run. That is not a biblical prayer. Does that sound like a person who understands that they have an audience with the king? Does that sound like a person who understands that they're standing before the throne of grace? You declare and decree. I don't think so. Kenneth Copeland. Surely you all are understanding that he's a false teacher by now. But Kenneth Copeland, all throughout this pandemic, especially early on, he made declares and decrees declaring the end of COVID-19. And he blew the breath of God because he was a prophet. Immediately, the cases exploded in America. The exact opposite of what he was saying. Do you understand that he openly, and anybody who does this sort of thing, openly puts themselves up for the charge of rebuke being labeled as a false prophet. Because a false prophet speaks, or a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord. That's why we don't have prophets this today anymore. The prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, and it was with all the authority of the Lord, because they were speaking God's commands that He gave them not speaking from their own heart. There's the name it and claim it model. You just claim things in prayer and speak them into existence. That if I tell God what I want and I claim what I want, that God is on the hook to make it happen. Rebuking Satan, sickness or poverty. Do you know who we are told to rebuke in the New Testament? 
people in unrepentant sin who call themselves Christian and false teachers. That's it. Never once does it tell us to rebuke a sickness. It doesn't tell us to rebuke the cold or COVID-19 or the bank account that you, uh, that, that's emptier than you want it to be. We are told to rebuke people who call themselves a brother and they're caught in sin, in unrepentant sin and false teachers. Do you know who rebukes Satan? Is God. That's who. What our disposition in prayer is to be is what John is saying here. Asking the Lord that we bring Him our requests. We don't demand. We don't command. We come humbly. Yes, with confidence. Confidence that we don't stand in condemnation. But not confidence in the sense of pride with our nose up in the air and our shoulders back telling the king what he is to do. No, no, no. He is sovereign and he is worthy of all of our reverence. So we don't storm the throne room of heaven. We don't demand, command, decree, name it and claim it, or any of these other biblical, unbiblical ways of praying. We ask according to his will. Look at it again. The back half of verse 14. If we ask anything, and a lot of people erase the next four words and end with, He hears us. This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything, He hears us. That's not what it says, is it? It says, if we ask anything according to His will, God is not a genie. He's not an ATM machine. We don't tell him what we want. We don't make him do anything. We pray according to his will with humility, trusting that his will is the best thing for us. Now, by default, we're not going to pray according to the will of the Lord. We're going to pray according to our will. Especially as you are growing in the faith, being really young in the faith, or, or, or a new babe in Christ, you're going to pray more selfish prayers. Think of a baby. What does a baby do? It just cries for attention all the time, doesn't it? It can't help itself. That little baby boy or baby girl needs to be fed. It can't get up and go to the refrigerator and get milk. He can't get up and go to the bathroom and and take care of business. He can't change his clothes. He can't get up and go to the car when it's time to leave. He's constantly crying, and you don't even understand it. I mean, somehow mothers understand what each decibel of cry means. But we don't understand what the baby is saying because they don't have right words. They're selfish. They need all the attention. I'm not saying this in this, that they're sinfully selfish. They're babies. But this is how we are when we are a babe in Christ. We need a lot of attention. We need a lot of help. When we go to the Lord in prayer, it's always going to be self-centered. We're not saying that that's okay. Eventually we grow from that. But you understand that the most important part is that we go to God and that we ask Him. That we're going to Him and asking Him. And that we are learning to pray according to His will. How do we do that? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you know this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we find God's will for our life? We open this book. And the prayer that we should pray the most often is help me to understand. Help me to understand and help me to apply it in my life. 
we're not going to ever know what God's full, specific plan is for us. There's a mysterious will of God that, that we won't know and we won't have access to. However, that's not what John is talking about here because there would be no way for us to ever guess that. We would never know what God's mysterious will for our life is in that we don't know exactly what He has planned for us. But what we do know is that come what may, His plan is always to shape us into the image of Christ. We know that. We know that no matter what's happening in our life, one thing that God is accomplishing at all times is to bring you closer to Him. One thing that God is always accomplishing in your life is to break you of sin. A lot of things happen that we won't understand, don't they? A lot of suffering, a lot of turmoil, a lot of difficulty, a lot of challenges, a lot of things we don't understand. And, and we, in that regard, we don't understand God's mysterious will, but we do know what's going on is that God's trying to make you more like Christ. He's breaking you of worldliness and making you more like His Son. So it's with a renewed mind that we will begin to think more Christ-like thoughts. We will begin to think in a more Godward direction. So that when we come to Him in prayer, it isn't all about me, 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 but it's about Him, Him, Him. How can I serve you more, Lord? Sanctify me, Lord. Where do, you, where do I need to confess my sin, Lord? Where do I need to re release things in my life to you, Lord? Where am I still walking in disobedience, Lord? Please help me to be more like Christ. When we know, when we pray that way, we know that He will hear us. Think about that. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God who spoke in the burning bush, hears you. This doesn't mean don't take your prayers before Him. Do it. Pray, pray, pray. You might be thinking to yourself, I, I don't know how to do that. Pray anyway. Spurgeon said it th this way. Pray until you can pray. Not pray until you can't pray anymore. Pray until you can pray. Pray to be helped to pray. And do not give up praying because you cannot pray. For it is when you think you cannot pray, that is when you are praying. <laughs> John Bunyan, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Bring your Father your cares and concerns. Ask your Father according to His will and know that He hears you. Lastly, we know that He answers us. Verse 15, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. This could read, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask according to His will. This verse doesn't tell us to just pray for our big, long list of cares, wishes and desires. I want a Mercedes, I want a nicer home, I, wanna, I want this, I want that, I want that. That's not what, God's, what He's talking about here. He's referring back to what He just said in verse 14, praying according to His will. All of the prayers prayed in accordance with His will are answered. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. Verse 42 Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. 
Then again in verse 44, he prayed again for the, fourth, the third time the same thing. But notice his heart in prayer. If it be possible, if this cup cannot pass from me, your will be done. He was resolute. Christ prayed for another way and there was no other way. The Father's will was done. Jesus modeled perfect obedience for us in carrying through with the Father's will even to the point of death. Everything that we ask of the Lord according to His perfect will will be answered. If it is for His glory, if it is to help us keep His commandments, if it, if it is to help us bear fruit, if it is to help us better love one another, He hears our prayers and He answers them. If you're listening to this right now and you're more concerned with the fact that perhaps you don't know much about the faith yet, perhaps you aren't well versed in doctrine and theology and all of this talk of God's will makes you nervous, that you'll unknowingly or accidentally pray something outside of God's will. Don't let that stop you from coming to Him. Bring all of your requests before the Lord. If you are His child, He hears you. And further than that, the Spirit Himself helps you. Listen to Romans 8, verse 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What's our weakness? We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, listen, according to the will of God. Church, every one of the Spirit's praise, prayers for you will be answered. Right after that, we find verse 28. You know Romans 8, 28. That we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things. What's the Spirit praying for? is that all things would work together for your good and for His glory. The very next verse after that, we find out that this plan is that you become more like Christ. The Spirit is always praying that inside of you. And those prayers are always answered. If you're nervous about you don't know what to pray for, come to Him and just bring your prayers. Bring your words. Bring whatever it is that you can ask and request of the Lord. And know this. He's your Father. And He hears you. Think of a child. A child laying in bed. He hears something go bump in the night. What does that child do? He runs out of bed, out of the room. It doesn't matter what his father is doing. He runs and interrupts him. He says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared. There's a monster in my closet. Would you come check it for me? Daddy, I'm scared. Because that father loves his child. He doesn't say, what a ridiculous thing for you to think, son or daughter. He doesn't say, there's no such thing as monsters. What does he say? He gets up. He says, let me go. I'll take care of this for you. He takes the child back to the room and tucks him back into bed and says, I'm going to take care of this monster and goes to the closet. The father knows there's no monster in the closet, doesn't he? But he opens it. He wants to give confidence to his child he opens it and see there's nothing there's nothing to be afraid of my son now i love you go back to bed that child is going to go back to sleep with all the confidence in the world in his father this is how we should pray
is with the same childlike faith. It doesn't matter if we think it's silly. Bring it to the Lord because he loves to hear his children's prayers. You might not know how to pray well or eloquently. Pray that the Lord would show you how to pray. Pray that he would teach you how to pray. This is what the disciples asked of Jesus. Teach us how to pray. Go to him. Babe in Christ is going to have nothing more than mumbling nonsense and coos and ahs. But it doesn't matter because the father loves to hear his children pray. Eventually, we mature a little bit more. We learn how to kind of put some sentences together, how to pray some of the scriptures. And our Father loves to hear those prayers because He loves His children. And eventually we mature and we learn how to apply doctrine in our prayers. And we learn how to pray through the Psalms. We learn how to pray according to His will, praying for our sanctification and that His name be hallowed in our life. And you know what? Our Father loves to hear those prayers as well because He loves to hear His children pray. It matters not how little sense you feel you are making. The Father understands you. And the Spirit helps you in your weakness. But what's more is that when you know that you know God, you can pray to Him confidently. When we know God we can know that we know God. When we know God, we can know that we are heard by God. When we know God, we can know that everything we pray according to His will will be answered. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that you want us to be confident that you have saved us, that you want us to be confident that we're your children. Lord, I pray that in this time, I pray that during, throughout our whole time in 1 John that your children are being filled with that confidence, myself included, that we would know that we have your ear and your attention when we are your children so we can go to you in prayer. Help us to learn to pray according to your will. Help us to be confident in prayer, not doubting, knowing that you will answer every prayer that is prayed according to your will. Please make us more like Christ. Please glorify yourself in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.